0: Hey everybody! Um, welcome back to another episode of the Londoners Blue Podcast. It's going to be a bit different than usual. Um, These episodes, so the episode you're listening to now, the episode coming out tomorrow, and the day after, are going to be a throwback to an old series we did on the history of Chelsea FC with official club historian and host of the famous CFC. If you've been listening to our programming closely, Rick Glanville, and it's it's a great series. It's it's just kind of a, a quick but extensive history on the club in three parts, um, pretty much from its founding all the way to now. Uh, X, Graham Potter, Tuchel, New Champions League, just before all that. Um, but pretty much everything else is in there. It's a great listen. We're incredibly proud of it still to this day, even a couple years later. The one thing we did want to note before just throwing you into this as a repost This is recorded March of 2020, so things are a little different at that time. We have COVID lockdown on football. We have COVID, obviously. Uh, We have pre, like I said, the Champions League win. Things are a little different. Uh, We didn't want to, like, you know, erasure it, though. So we're sharing this as the World Cup ends for a lot of new Chelsea fans, a lot of Chelsea fans who might have missed it those years ago and have joined since. So enjoy it over the next few days. Enjoy the holidays from all of us. Sincerely. We love you guys. Thank you for being here for us. Um, and also, that it's going to sound a little different. This is a two-year-old episode. A set of two-year-old episodes. So, that's that, look, I've improved at my editing, I think, a little since then, I hope. So if it sounds a little different, bear with us. It, it still sounds good. I think it does. But thank you guys so much for listening. Happy holidays, and enjoy these episodes.
1: Hi, uh, this is Ruben Off the Cheek. This is William. I'm Mason Mount. You're listening to the London is Blue podcast.
2: All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode of the London is Blue podcast. Uh, coming at you guys with a new one. This is definitely a little bit different from what we're used to, but Nick, that's kind of been our theme this season. We've been trying all these different things, different types of content, shows, topics, ideas. Uh, this one
3: is going to set a new bar, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, we, we're trying to do these pod specials. And, you know, amongst the 900 other episodes you have to listen to from us, we're, we're doing a, a pod special series about the history uh, and legacy of Chelsea Football Club, Dan. 115 years on March 10th. And we have a special, special guest to help us break it down in three parts.
4: That's right. None other than Club Historian, the only one for Chelsea Football Club, the only one I would want, Rick Glanville, is going through 115 years. And I think, Nick, we made the mistake of thinking you could fit or you could compact 115 years of history. That's right, because we have that history into a single hour of podcasting. So we scrapped that so we could go a little bit deeper and a little bit longer. So this is just the first part.
3: Yeah. Yeah. My script writing went a little long uh, on this one. So uh, yeah, Rick was generous enough to, uh, to do this in three parts. Uh, Each part will be about an hour. So, I mean, it's a lot of time and and effort from him. Uh, If you are able to give him a shout out on social media or, or, uh, you know, shoot him a note, that would be really great because he was incredibly generous with his time, Brandon, but we, we shouldn't delay anymore. We got to get into the goods.
2: Exactly. So uh, as you can tell, part one coming at you in a three part series. Uh, this one will be kind of from the founding up until about 1955. Part two uh, will be then uh, all the way up in, you know, through the 80s. And then we get into the Matthew Harding into uh, Roman Abramovich era. So uh, hope you enjoy it. And then without any further delay, here we go. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to a- another episode of the London is Blue podcast, bringing us another special episode. We've, uh, we've definitely been changing things up a lot this season, Nick. We've been bringing a lot of different stuff in for the listeners, uh, let them kind of see what they like, you know, maybe expand their horizons, expose them to new things. And I think this, especially for our American audience, will definitely expand
3: their horizons and knowledge as Chelsea fans. Yeah, this is something I've, I've wanted to do for quite some time. Kind of kind of feel like uh, Ryan Russillo when he does his special episodes. But um, we we have gotten to know Rick Glanville, Chelsea's historian, uh, over the past few trips uh, to London. We've had a really good time going on his walking tour. We've had a good time drinking beers at the pub. Uh, <laughs> and, and every time we talk to him, we learn something new about Chelsea. And we thought this would be a really good moment coming up on the 115th. Uh, anniversary of the founding of Chelsea Football Club, Rick, to to bring you in uh, for this for this key moment and, and to talk a little bit about the condensed chronological history and, and key moments <laughs> that kind of made the club what it is today.
1: Oh, absolutely, and and happy 115th birthday to us all. Yeah, and uh... <laughs> we're, we're looking pretty good for 115. Never looked sexier. <laughs> <laughs> and. Um... Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, we we celebrate the Founders Day every year at the club, and um, you know, it's it's interesting, uh, we've been so successful in the last 25 years or so. I mean, really, one of the elite clubs in the world now, but wow, we were uh, we were a long way from that 50 years ago, and um, uh, you know, when I look back, being the official club historian, my uh, enviable task is to look at things from the perspective of now um, that are the same and the things that are very different. And in fact, if you look back 150 years, 15 years ago, um, other than the success that we've had, the club was very similar. And we'll come on to a lot of these, uh, uh, these aspects that will try and with people today, like the fact that we were instantly described as a money bags club uh you know the, the wealthiest club in the country but we had a huge following uh, nine times in our early years we had the largest uh, home average attendance of any club uh, in england and it's my conjecture that actually we had the largest home attendance on average in the world at certain times and um uh but you can tell from the uh, the, the the founders and and other and the the way that they handled the club in those early days that, <laughs> funny enough, very little has changed uh, even <laughs> since Roman Abramovich took over in two thousand and three. In fact, I always say the 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 bit that wasn't continuous in the Chelsea story uh, was the part from say nineteen seventy five to nineteen ninety five. That was the kind of aberration in our long history. And the rest of the time, we were just buying great players and um, not having a great deal of success, but being really attractive and exciting. And always a news story, uh, always something going on. Uh, So kind of uh, uh, attracting a following of people that just like to be entertained. And it's only really since... Uh, the 90s that we slightly we carried on spending that money but we brought the success with it and I think the key was buying good defenders and good goalkeepers rather than just going for goal scorers the whole time in any case uh so what do you want to know about the foundation should we talk about what it was like uh why they set up the club um uh, because Chelsea was yeah almost uniquely a club built from scratch it didn't come out of a like a factory team or a church team or or a sunday team it was just literally started from scratch at a uh, an athletic stadium that had been there uh, in the area since 1870 so shall i tell you a little bit about the uh, the the founders and why they went went through this kind of thing I, d-
4: I definitely think we should rick but before we jump into that i think we've had the benefit of getting to you know, getting our history lessons from you, but yeah. I think from the context of, of those who maybe have not heard of you yet, which is a shame, uh, <laughs> how, how do you define or how does one become the club historian just so that we can, you know, uh, further provide the context for, you know, why you are the right person to be sharing this information and why people should uh, trust you without <laughs> question.
1: <laughs> okay, so my, uh, my credentials. Well, uh, I'm a lifelong Chelsea fan. My first match at Stamford Bridge was in 1966 and uh, against Derby County. And uh, I'm a, a journalist, a writer most of my life. I was a music writer um, on the Arts Desk at uh, the Guardian newspaper in London, uh, and I wrote an Urban Miss column of ur- Urban Miss for them uh, in the 1990s, and I had some spare time on my hand. And in 1993, I wrote to the uh, editor of the Chelsea uh, newspaper Onside, or magazine, I should say, Onside, and uh, he was just taking over the, the programme as well. Uh, I didn't know this, but I wrote to him, and you know who that is, spy, Neil Barnett. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I rather cheekily said, look, I really like the content, but you need better writers and I'm a better writer. (laughs) And and, um, uh, so we met and we got on really well and I started going down to the training ground. So from 1993, I've had that association and I had loads of history books, but I didn't really trust them. Uh, There were too many, what seemed to me like uh, untested theories or myths about the club that seemed to be perpetuated, and once I started looking into them, I realised that we, that was the case. And we didn't really have—we had like one history uh, of the club that was being uh, endlessly, or, or rather, what I should say is, we had a few uh, pieces written by Frederick Parker, who is a key figure in the early Chelsea. Uh, And he wrote lots of letters and books and bits in the programme and things. And really, it was only his voice that was being used to tell our uh, our history, our early history. And brilliant writers and uh, fans like Scott Cheshire uh, had had written books about it. And they hadn't really done what I would do as a trained journalist, which is to go back and say, "Right, I don't believe that. Prove it to me." Mm -hmm. And go back to original sources and check all the details and and then kind of reassess it. Don't just assume that everything that you've been handed down is true. So, um because I was taking this approach, and I was turning up these all these uh, those, turning over every stone and finding new information and rewriting. And in two thousand and five, when I'd been writing for the club and various out, outlets and work, being on Chelsea TV and all these other things for uh, for quite some time. Uh, The uh, the club said, "Look, we we're going to do an anniversary, a two anniversary, uh, sorry, two centenary books, official books. Would you like to write them?" Yes, of course. Uh, And I ended up writing both. One is the biography of Chelsea Football Club, the official biography that was done in two thousand and five, and then there's the official history in pictures, which was done the year after. And uh, so the year, so around that time, they said, "Look." We've never had an official club historian. We want you to be it. Would you do it? So I've been doing it ever since. And uh, uh, the uh, on, as far as the walking tour is concerned, I'm a fully qualified London tour guide. Uh, so uh, there's that, that side of it as well. We've
2: seen
3: that credential, so we can <laughs> validate that. <laughs> you're, you're on the quest to have the most jobs in history right now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I mean, there's things like, you know, uh, uh, there are so many things that, I felt that we were underplaying uh, our history. When I was young, the 66 to really, I mean, obviously I was there when we won the cup and not at the game, but I was around to appreciate uh, watching the game on TV when we won the FA Cup in 1970 and then the Cup, cup in 1971. And these things appeared on the front of the programme. You know, that little credential there was on the bottom of the programme. And then I'd look and go, hold on a minute, we won the league in 1955. Why don't we talk about that? You know, it was like this weird feeling that we didn't celebrate our history, that we were not ashamed of it, but embarrassed about it compared to, say, you know, uh, Manchester United or Arsenal or some of these people that had maybe uh, more to shout about. We just had a, a few pots. But what I took it upon myself to do was to look at the stories, to bring out narratives that showed the richness of our history, where we did things that were unique and where we uh, where we were pioneers and um, how we were considered such a huge club because we had such a, a great following and amazing footballers down the years. So I think that is the approach that I've always taken. And I've been trying to, you know, tump-thump our history uh, and as an anecdote, uh, antidote to that kind of... this. Uh, lazy, journalistic, no history before uh, Roman Abramovich came in in 2003 that you hear even from uh, journalists, you know, from uh, football people in the media. Right. Well,
2: and that is what we are here to do, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Today's theme, can I I steal this thunder from you guys? You good with that? (laughs) You know what? Go ahead, Brandon, please. (laughs) This is a good one. We've got history at this club and we're going (laughs) to go through it. So, Rick, as you had alluded to before, how was the club founded? We weren't a Sunday League team. We weren't a school team. Uh, who founded us? Where was it founded? The name? Maybe some significant moments during the early days. What
1: in the world? How did this happen? <laughs> okay, well, um, first of all, let me set the, give an idea of what football was like uh, before Chelsea. There was one. Uh, London club in the top flight, Arsenal, and they were really struggling. They were in a dingy part of London. They were getting really poor crowds. They were financially uh, troubled. Uh, it's a bit of a basket case, really. And the rest of the Football League was dominated, I mean, absolutely dominated by clubs from the northwest of England. So people that don't know their English geography, I'm talking there about sort of Liverpool, uh, Everton, Manchester United, those kind of clubs. And then in the Midlands, Aston Villa and And and, uh, those uh, teams from around there. London, the biggest city in England, didn't have a big football club. So, when um, the the two brothers who were among the founders of the club, Gus Mears and Joseph Theophilus Mears, they were building contractors. They did big civic projects. Um, If it wasn't for the Mears brothers, Fulham Football Club would be drowning in the Thames. They built the embankment that keeps uh, Fulham Football Club, where it is, and not uh, you know overcome by the River Thames. Uh, and they did—they built cinemas, they built theatres, uh, they ran steam boats up the Thames. Uh, they were a significant uh, building contractor and very, very wealthy. They also owned lots of property. And Gus Mears borrowed the money from the family trust fund to acquire the site of a long-established. Uh, athletics uh, arena called Stamford Bridge, which is brilliantly positioned, uh, great uh, railway service, great underground or tube as we call it here, uh, supply since 1880, and it was on the main east, east-west road into uh, central London. So it was well served by trams and buses and other, other things. So perfectly positioned to allow big crowds to come in and out uh, on a, when there was a meeting, an athletics meeting on. So Gus Mears borrows the money from the Family Trust Fund in 1902. He buys uh, the land on which uh, Stamford Bridge uh, is uh, s- situated now from my ancestor, would you believe? It's <laughs> quite incredible. I found this out recently that um, my ancestor owned the land that Stamford Bridge was on and was sold to Gus Mears. I was just blown away by that. Robert Stunty's name is. He's my fifth cousin six times removed. So we're, we're, <laughs> wow. we're really close. We're really, really close. close. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We still write to each other. Um, huh. <laughs> but uh, he was a big fan of athletics. And it was the Athle- London Athletic Club that was, uh, at least the, uh, uh, the stadium there. And so, uh, it was established there. People were coming there. You'd have work stays out. So if you're, if, if you're, if your company, all the Italian waiters in London, we going to Stanford bridge for their, their big, their equivalent is the Olympics where they do sort of running along with, uh, uh, with a tray to make sure that you're keeping all the champagne glasses up and over a hundred meters or a hundred yards or whatever, so it was like it was like a lung in that part of West London, so it was known for that, but what it wasn't known was for was football and uh, Gus Mears, as I mentioned, and his brother J. T. Mears and their brother in law Henry Boyer, and Frederick Parker, who is another really interesting person and t- and two uh, members of the James family, who were publicans, uh, were the prime movers, really, in setting up a football club that would be uh, as uh, that would be as big as the Northwestern clubs and the Midland clubs, and be the biggest club in England. Uh, their ideas started to come, start to formulate in 1904. Now they didn't have; uh, they were fans of Athletics and Fred Parker was a timekeeper for the London Athletic Club. So he knew Stamford Bridge. He knew it extremely well. Uh, They started to have meetings at a pub called the Zetland Arms in South Kensington. And if you go to the Zetland Arms nowadays, uh, it's still there. It's still a Chelsea pub. If you walk in there wearing any other shirt colour, football shirt colour than Chelsea, they will ask you to cover it up or leave the pub. So it's still very much a Chelsea, Chelsea boozer. Nice. But as I say, there wasn't. They had to start this football team from scratch, and they had to build a, a stadium, or rather, knock down a, Really, the, the athletics stadium was very. The structures on it were very small, so it was a simple job of knocking that down, and, but a much bigger task of building a a huge stadium that they anticipated would host up to ninety thousand people from the off. I mean, it took a few years to reach that level, but that, that was their ambition. And because if you think about what they were doing, they were trying to establish this football, first big football club in London. They were looking at the fact that in England, um, workers were starting to have more time off. Um, in England in 1905, if you were working in a factory, you'd work till just before lunchtime on a Saturday, and then your afternoon was your own. Um, people were starting to argue for better wages and they were receiving better wages. So you had, uh, and there were public holidays that were, were being brought in as well. So you had this kind of uh, perfect, beautiful storm as far as these entrepreneurial uh, directors were of, of like a, a massive audience that wasn't being tapped. You know, this huge metropolis of of England with fantastic transport links to Stamford Bridge. Um, you could build this Great uh, stadium, and like PT Barnum, build it and they will come. And then you can uh, you can charge them a decent amount of money. You can get huge crowds in there, and then you have to build a brilliant football team that is going to attract people regularly and score the goals that are going to entertain people. So that's what they, that's what they did. Um, and I always say about the the founders that the, the, for me the James family are really interesting because there were two of them who were founder. Directors of the club. And they ran all of the pubs in the area. Uh, I mean, literally seven or eight of them in the locality. It doesn't take much imagination to think why (laughs) the idea of a football club with 80, you know, uh, between 30 and 80,000 people coming there once a fortnight would be attractive to people that have uh, have got the whole of those watering holes stitched up. Um, So on 10th of March 1905, at uh, a pub that was owned by the Janes family, the Rising Sun, which is still there, now called the Butcher's Hook, directly opposite Stamford Bridge Stadium, The uh, message came out that Chelsea Football Club had been founded, uh, that the capital had been raised, and they were going to, uh, they would be in the, join the Football League. They did join the Football League uh, at uh, a meeting just a few months later. Another really interesting person who was one of the founding directors of Chelsea Football Club that hardly ever gets mentioned, actually, is a fellow called George Thomas. Now, George Thomas was a West Londoner who was orphaned at a very early age and actually sort of escaped from his foster parents to go to sea in the Merchant Navy. And it happened that he was based at Southampton. And now he was working in the Merchant Navy. He was working on cruise ships and uh, post office ships and all these kinds of things. And um, he ended up leaving the Merchant Navy, but staying in Southampton. Now, we all know that Titanic sailed from Southampton, don't we, in 1912. But prior to that, lots of the other cruise ships needed provisioners and needed people that were going to supply everything from partridges to toilet paper uh, to provision those huge ships. It was a massive contract. And George Thomas, after he left the Merchant Navy, set up as a provision merchant on Southampton Dock to... Provide for these huge transatlantic uh, 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 liners. And he became an extremely wealthy man. Not only that, he loved football. And rather than going back to West London immediately, he got involved with Southampton Football Club and he built and owned the Dell, which was their stadium for 100 years or so. So you think of this you've got this West London fella who's based in Southampton. He must have heard, or they heard about him, and they knew he there was a connection to West London. So they contact him, and they have all that expertise, all that stadium building expertise, brought in uh, at the foundation uh, of the club in 1905. And as I say, he was one of the uh, he was on the board uh, when they launched. So I think I hope people are getting a picture of a really professional uh, approach, a very entrepreneurial. business like commercially minded approach what they're thinking is this is going to be and it's part of the entertainment industry it's going to be hugely popular um, it's going to make a lot of money we might make some money out of it but you know the club will make money well and they were thinking we'll reinvest it to keep getting the stars of the day on that pitch to attract the crowds and this is going to be like the biggest club in in london before you know it and it's Rick, does true. that
4: make does that make Chelsea the first startup club?
1: Um, not. We were the first club to start from scratch to be elected into the Football League in 1905. So there was an election meeting. Uh, the, the Football League met in Tavistock's uh, the Tavistock Hotel at Covent Garden. Uh, Fred Parker, who, um, as I said, it was his. Re- it really it was his vision. He was the man who had the the kind of the big picture, and I think. Well, look. If I put it like this, okay, we all know Shakespeare, and we all know that Shakespeare was the man who wrote the plays, and we know that Burbage was the man who owned a theatre that would stage them. So Burbage was the money, Shakespeare was the ideas. And if you think of Gus Mears being Burbage, then Fred Parker is Shakespeare. He's the creative one. He's the one who's thinking he has the big picture in his head, and he's the one who who creates something that is going to last forever in Chelsea Football Club. and what you so uh, at this meeting uh, the football uh, league uh, Chelsea are bidding to to join the football league and all the night before <clears throat> fred parker is plying the people that are going to be voting the club chairman he's plying them with drinks and chatting to them about how brilliant how amazing the, the chelsea project is going to be so they they're, they think he's getting drunk with them, but he's bribed the barmaids. So whenever he goes and gets a round of Scotch and Polly, it was the drink that he was giving them. That was a fashionable, fashionable drink at the time. A round of those, just give me soda water. So he stays sober. So when the vote happens the next morning, they're all hungover, and they're all falling in love with this brilliant scheme that Chelsea are proposing and they vote Chelsea through. So yes, we're the first from scratch uh, elected. Club and um, you know that I, I just think that there's so many interesting, so many clever decisions that, that they made. Uh, they they bought a great um, <clears throat> Scottish international, uh, Jackie Robertson. He was our first player manager, and that's one of the themes of, of, of throughout our history. We've had success with player player managers. That's somebody's who's a player and a manager at the same time. So they pick themselves in the pitch. It tends to mean that they're young because they're still playing. So they're not in their 60s and been there, done that. So that's kind of set the tone so many times through our history of having this kind of investing in youth, uh, believing in the that kind of vigour of youth and accepting maybe that they'll make mistakes and it won't be perfect And maybe not having, not trusting experience as much as as we should have. So it's part of the, the personality of the football club right from the very start.
2: All right. Well, I think we're going to take a short break. Bear with us, Chelsea fans. We have much more coming back from Rick in just a short second. A thank you to these sponsors for supporting the show financially. If you're bored of the US Netflix, why not just take it for a spin in the UK? Using NordVPN and a click of a button, you can do just that. No need to travel to Japan for your favorite anime when NordVPN brings it right to you. With over 5,000 plus server options, no show is out of your reach. Using my link, nordvpn.com forward slash London is blue, you can receive a huge discount on a two year plan plus one free month. We all love to binge, but look, privacy is a big deal too. NordVPN keeps your information encrypted, so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. They've also doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. Say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware. Even if you download an affected file, threat protection kicks in and deletes it before it makes the mess of your computer. Don't forget, there's literally no risk when you use our 30-day money-back guarantee. Give it a try, and if you like it, great. If you don't, they'll issue you a refund. You can pretend the entire situation never happened. Check out my link again. That's NordVPN.com forward slash London is blue to get your subscription started today.
3: So Rick, obviously Chelsea Football Club, stylish name, uh, but uh, I've read that it was not always potentially going to be that. Can Can you take us quickly through the other names that were potentially on offer uh, as, as the club was
1: founded? Yeah, they were discussing a number of different uh, names uh, before they founded the club. Uh, London United was one, Kensington FC, and Stamford Bridge uh, FC was, was another. And obviously, that was the name of the stadium that the club was going to be based at. But Fred Parker, uh, who had been an official with the London Athletic Club, who were based at Stanford Bridge, said, no, no, that's going to be a really bad idea because there's a famous, uh, in English history, there's a famous uh, battleground called Stamford Bridge that's uh, about 250 uh, miles north in Yorkshire. And um, people visit it, and uh, there's a little museum there, and people wrote letters to them. And some of those letters used to arrive at the London Athletic Club in London, rather than 250 miles north in Yorkshire. So he said, "There's too much confusion with that battleground. So we can't call ourselves Stamford Bridge Football Club." Um, I think Kensington was just not. Uh, I think they were. They were thinking, you know, when you're listed, you want to be. It's a bit like if you're a. A dry cleaning business, you call yourself A to Z dry cleaning or something. So when you come up in that list alphabetically, you're higher up immediately. <laughs> so I can think that's the only reason that they chose Chelsea over Kensington, apart from uh, Chelsea, as our great player Jimmy Greaves said. It's, uh, it's a fantastic name. It represents the best part of the greatest city in the world. The irony, of course, is that we're, we're based in Fulham, not Chelsea. <laughs> but we adopted the um, the coat of arms, the civic coat of arms of the London Borough of Chelsea. And we still wear that on our chests now. So it was a a brilliant decision. Um, there were also nicknames. Do you want to hear what nicknames we might have used? Um, yes. Because oh, they were looking oh, at... Oh, boy, yes. <laughs> we were looking at um, <laughs> some really strange ones. One was... Because uh, you have this discussion in the match programme, like, oh, people are saying... That, the local newspaper saying we should come up with a nickname. So, what do you think of these ones? The little strangers. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Little Whoa. strangers. Wow. <laughs> um, that would not have aged well at all. <laughs> the the Colts. Terrible. Uh, uh. The uh, um, the buns. Now, this is because there's a pastry called the Chelsea bun. Uh, <laughs> wouldn't now that would be a hard sell in America, wouldn't it? <laughs> and. Um, And and then, of course, there's uh, the Royal Hospital just down the road from us with these famous uh, army veterans called the Chelsea Pensioners. Mm -hmm. And that's the most famous association with Chelsea. And so uh, the programme didn't like it. They said, hmm, a bit representative of the likes of former days, you know, a bit old, passé, but they were overtaken by events. Everyone called us the pensioners. And so we ended up being nicknamed the pensioners.
4: Rick, there were also... Speaking of nicknames, in our first <laughs> Chelsea team that was put out, I think there are two that uh, Nick and I <laughs> tend to love a little bit, uh, William Fatty <laughs> Folk and George Gatlingun Hildson. Uh, yes. <laughs> do, do you have any uh, favorite stories or anecdotes about some of those uh, wonderfully or aptly named individuals?
1: Well, Folk, um, the players called him Baby, a bit like, like Babe. Wasn't that... Um... Lauren and Hardy, wasn't that Oliver Hardy's nickname was Babe? I think it was one of those things that people called someone that was, you know, it was an ironic thing. you clearly not a baby. Uh, But um, yes, he was six foot two and a half and 23 stones. And um, Chelsea marketed him almost like as a a freak of sport um, (laughs) because he was nimble on his feet. And they would... At, when they travelled to away games, they would pay someone to walk around with like a, an A-board on, you know, those an, like an advertising board, uh, on which was painted, uh, come and see the 23-stone goalkeeper. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite remarkable, really, how they, how they marketed him in that fashion. Not only that, but they played up his size by, well, Chelsea were the first uh, football team ever to use ball boys. Uh, there was an athletics track around the pitch at Stamford Bridge and it was quite a, uh, quite deep uh, at either end. So if the ball went down there. Mr Falk, with his 23 stones, didn't want to haul himself down there and pick it up. So Chelsea employed small boys, uh, one of whom we know was called James Ridley. And uh, he would go and fetch the ball and bring it back to behind Falk's goal on a, on a match day. So Chelsea introduced ball boys to, to football. Um, and the great thing about Falk was notorious. He used to play up to uh, all of this stuff he, uh, that he over and everything. And he, he used to say, I don't care what you call me, just don't call me l- late for dinner. <laughs> that was one of his <laughs> phrases. And um, a great story from our first ever away game at Stockport County, which we, we lost um, uh, 1-0. Um, it could have been 2-0, because they were awarded a penalty. And their striker put the ball down in the net, and this obviously fork stretched himself to his fullest extent. I mean, he was a monster of a man. He was like, like Henry VIII or something, huge bloke. And it so intimidated the the player, the opposition player, that, he, that his kick was weak and it went straight to fork and he saved it. And as they were walking off at the end, the opposition manager was berated his striker and said, "How the hell did you miss that penalty?" And he said, oh, "I just put the ball down, and then I looked up, and I couldn't see anywhere to put the ball past him. He was so big." <laughs> and he only lasted—he only lasted a year. But Gatling Gun George Hilsdon. um, Gatling Gun is like a repeat. Rifle that you worked with a handle and it had been used in the Boer War which, Charles, which um, England uh, or Britain rather had fought uh, just about five, finished fighting that about five years earlier. Uh, and he was, uh, Gat, he was called Gatling Gun because he could shoot with both feet and re- he shot really quickly and really early uh, and with enormous power. Um, and in 1908, he, he'd become our first centurion uh, in goals uh, soon after joining us in uh, 1906, um, And he was our first England uh, call-up. So he was quite the quite pioneer. And so impressive was his contribution to the star status of the club. That one sports paper said, we should have a memorial to him. Stanford Bridge. Now, what what could what form could this take? So they had a competition, and people wrote in, and the winning entry was this this kind of Hellenic, uh, this gallant Hellenic uh, statue, like it's something out of ancient Greece or or Rome or something, of, of him uh, standing on this pile of defeated enemies, holding a football. That didn't happen, but there is a permanent memorial to Kathlyn and George, still at Stanford Bridge. To this day, in the form of a 13-foot-high weather vane that was modelled on George Hillston. So there you go, from 1906 to 2020, Gatling gun George is there up on the uh, uh, above Stamford Bridge. I love it, and uh, just for you all that don't
2: know, 22 stones—that's over 300 pounds. This man was a monster. He was absolutely (laughs) huge. (laughs) <laughs> um and so that'll give you a little bit more perspective but you know um you know rick talking about the ground a little bit obviously mm. you know we've touched on a lot of it chelsea well i guess i should say you know maybe the the mirrors family they hosted some some really really famous events throughout the early years there didn't
1: they absolutely um it as i say it was this was a uh an entrepreneurial uh idea so they weren't satisfied with having the ground full every fortnight they wanted to lease it out for other things so in the summer the London Athletics Club had all their meetings Olympic uh, runners uh, used to grace the the track there if you there's an old film called Chariots of Fire and two of the main characters in there they ran at Stamford Bridge Um, so you know there's there's, it was renowned for as an athletics venue but you had uh, American baseball was there um, loads of times, and particularly uh, during the early years of, of World War I. So like 1914, uh, there was a, a baseball match there. I think it was Red Sox versus Dodgers, something like that. And I think again in 1918. And in the program, it's brilliant. There's all these uh, diagrams explaining to the Limey audience what the rules of baseball are. And the royal family were present when the baseball took place there. Um, and then, so when these were like one-off events and Highland Games they used to have there and all these sorts of things. But I think what they realized is that they needed to have something more regularly. So initially they would have, uh, do you have Speedway Racing in, in the States? Yep. That oh, yeah. You know, dirt Track, I think we, we call it over over here sometimes. Um And then we had this thing called midget car racing, which is a classic sort of Chelsea thing, these tiny little cars passing around the track. and uh, But then really from the uh, 1930s, uh, Stamford Bridge was known for Chelsea Football Club, but also for Greyhound Racing. So it was a dog track. And in fact, um, talk about the dogs... The dogs wagged the tail of Chelsea Football Club. They came to dominate it, really. Decisions that were made uh, about how to take the stadium forward. Uh, The Greyhound Racing Association had uh, had the whip hand, so to speak. Um, The shed, the the famous um, 1930s structure, the roof over the south end that became known as the shed, that was built not for the football crowd, but built for the Greyhound Racing aficionados. Um, And that lasted, we had Greyhound Racing there up until 1968, and actually a lot of footballers when they retired, they would go and work there, either as bookmakers or work on the turnstiles. So it actually worked quite well for for everyone. Um, So it was was a multi-purpose venue. And obviously uh, in more recent years, you've had, it's been a music venue, and Uh, The punk band The Jam, uh, Paul Weller's Mob, they played their first ever London gig at Stamford Bridge um, in about 1977, I think it was, 1976. Um, Toots and the Maytels have played at Stamford Bridge in the 1970s. And obviously we have the nightclub now underneath uh, Stamford Bridge called Under the Bridge and everyone, all the great bands of, of have uh, of played there too. So you can see that that continuity of trying to use the stadium because it's so good for transport and everything else, trying to use it and make money from it as as much as possible. And I think why I really,
2: you know, like hearing about that is because, you know, Rick, would it be wrong to say that like this football club has always been built off of entertainment, right? And the attraction and the sexiness. And this this is kind of the foundation of Chelsea. And I think that we can see a lot of that even in the club today. But to think that that was going on
1: all the way back then, and it's just remained, is fascinating. We always courted the top entertainers of the day. There was this show business association that the club felt was good for them. Some of the burnish of the club came from that. Uh, being near to, close to uh, West End theatre and show business people and artists and all these kinds and poets and things that were in the area of Chelsea anyway, uh, uh, married to the fact that they were that this was a an entertainment business and they knew that that was they had to fill it so they always went for the kind of people that were going to be attractive like you know George hilsdon being such a prolific goalscorer and many other since then, but also no people forget that before the kind of celebrities we have now who are film stars and all the rest of it in England, royalty was celebrity, they were the celebrities of their day, the royal family mm-hmm. so we played in we didn't play in royal blue shirts for the first two years of, uh, of our existence, we played in Eton blue, which was uh, Eton is a, a public school in, in England and their are sports colours are like a lightish, bluish, greeny colour. And that's what we played in our shirts for the first two years. It was yeah. only after a visit by the royal family in 1907 to Stamford Bridge that we adopted that iconic royal blue uh, that we wear today. So they were kind of desperately trying to, to get this um, these connections in higher society and this sort of, Matrix of great connections in showbiz and uh, and royal circles and all these guys and things. They're very much on the make and just trying to be out there and be as as big and as popular as possible. Yeah, that is fantastic. I just looked up
2: Eaton Blue and it is much more of a teal than anything. Which wow, that would that would make for different different
1: circumstances, but quite yeah. interesting <laughs> uh, nonetheless. Very cool. George Robey is the person I was trying to think of. There it uh is. George. You know, so when we were in those early days, we were trying to court these people. And George Roby was the biggest star of the day. Uh, he was a musical comedian, a performer, sort of packed out audiences all over, all over the country. Uh, in fact, we signed him as a reserve after he appeared in a charity match. I, I think expecting that he would say, oh, you know, I'm I'm a Chelsea footballer and be really proud of it. But in fact... He registered what is recorded as the first joke at Chelsea's expense. Um, We were promoted in 1907. And in 1907 and eight, George Robey on a stage in West Ham said the only reason I signed up as a Chelsea player was to, because they were desperate to try and stay in the first division, which we just got promoted to. So that was the first recorded joke at Chelsea's expense and not the last, <laughs> unfortunately.
0: Hey guys, editor Jake again. Uh, part of these old episodes is that there's not two ad breaks, which we do now. If you listen to our show, you know that by now. But... Second ad break, thank you guys so much. And thank you to our sponsors for making our show possible.
4: So maybe if we fast forward just a touch. uh, So there was the promotion and relegation kind of before 1932. Um, And then, you know, we also kind of had started maybe signing some star players, but we're underachieving. I think maybe, you know, Roy Bentley coming from Newcastle United in 1948 might be a big kind of inflection point before 1955. Maybe you want to talk about that and any specific other factors during that time frame from founding to 1955.
1: Well, I think I think the key the, what happened really is that we had the same manager for uh, for 26 years, and he was really unsuccessful. David Calderhead, his name was, and really what he did was he just signed a succession of brilliant strikers and less good uh, defenders and and goalkeepers uh, and. So we were getting these huge crowds in, as I said, you know the biggest in England for year after year, nine times over that period of time. And then we got promoted in 1930, and we signed this brilliant, uh, the brilliant Hugh Gallagher, one of the best strikers ever in British football, an incredible Scottish uh, attacker. And uh, he stayed for a few years. and We brought other players to dress around him. But again, he would score so many goals, but we would just let in more. So we were still unsuccessful. And that epitomizes really what we were like until, as you say, I think, you know, 55 uh, was the first time that we won the league. And it was only really um, when Ted Drake came in in 1952, just to jump ahead a little bit, that we actually kind of, our head our mindset changed a little bit from being a team that just wanted to entertain and uh, a kind of expectation that the crowd was very forgiving and as long as they were entertained they didn't care whether they lost 6-5 at home or or you know or 4-2 uh, at home or something like that as long as they saw goals whoever ever scored them so that sort of really i th- i think from 52 was when Ted Drake tried to change, change the culture of the club from being a kind of, uh, oh, never mind club, which was the, the motto of the founder, Gus Mears, that seemed to have sustained us for 50 unsuccessful <laughs> years, um, to something like, no, care, care more, uh, be more partisan, get behind the team, we want success. He was much more, like I live in the Mourinho pragmatic role than any manager uh, that we'd had before um, and i think that's sort of it's interesting obviously that's you know almost half uh, just under halfway through uh, our existence now so you know um and really i suppose you could look at it that from 55 was when we we tried to be a bit more pragmatic we tried to we realized that uh, trophies are important and when that really came to the fore was sort of uh, from the 1990s, again, another kind of um, readjustment of the club culture and a, a recognition that if you want to get the crowds in, you've really got to have success to go with it. So I think that, and, but there is one really important thing before, we, before 1955, and that is that we had a manager who came in in 1939 called Billy Beryl, now, 1939, obviously, is when World War II uh, broke out. So it was a really difficult time for this uh, for this manager, Billy Burrell, to enact plans. But he had brilliant schemes that he wanted to uh, put forward. And one of them has sustained us ever since. And I've got some new research on this, actually, because what he instigated was the Chelsea Juniors the youth team, the youth scheme. And he had a brilliant approach, which was very holistic. It was to educate them, not just in sports medicine and tactics and fitness, but also to educate them as well as as, as citizens and people. So they had regular school lessons on top of, uh, of their football training. And how about this? Uh, what I've just found out is that The first Chelsea junior to make it into the first team was uh, it happened in 1940, um, which is a lot earlier than we thought the junior scheme was producing uh, players at. And the first player was Ron Greenwood, who ended up being uh, an England manager. And in 1955, he played half our games uh, as we won the league. So that's our first junior and can you think of a bigger success than that someone who <laughs> our first ever junior uh, played half the games when we won the league and went on to become the manager of the england football team it's remarkable it's that kind of foresight that
3: we were you know, as we were kind of creating the script we, we looked at and said you know this is kind of youth revolution part one we'll, we'll get to part two and three as, as we move kind of through the years but uh, this was this was such an important piece, uh, not only for you know obviously um, Burel's time at the club, um, mm-hmm. which you know kind of ended, um, but he set in, in place some of the motions that allowed players like Jimmy Greaves, Bobby Smith, Peter Osgood, Peter Ray Wilkins, Ron Harris, Bobby Tambling, Alan Hudson, all these guys to to be successful at long after he was gone at the club. So. Can, was, was this like a, a, a really inventive program at the time, Rick, or did, or did everyone have these kinds of, of systems?
1: There were other youth, uh, there were other juniors teams. We played um, against them in 1940, but there weren't that many and they didn't have anything like the holistic approach, the all-encompassing approach that uh, that Billy Birrell took. And I think that's the key thing. It's the idea that you, not you're not just training on a Thursday night and playing on a Saturday or Sunday, uh, but you're getting a proper introduction to the prof- to the world of the professional footballer and tactics and you know you. I mean, there are photos of the of these young men sitting in a room like like any old school room like at desks with a blackboard at the end and chalk markings on it and all these kinds of things. So I think it was the. Uh, it, it was the depth it was the immersion i think the the mere, the immersive approach that was so revolutionary and as you say i mean the team that was successful the kingsroad swingers after the war uh from the 1960s to through the 19 mid 1970s the vast majority of those came through uh a later version of that same junior scheme the team that uh has in the past few years, um, won the uh, FA Youth Cup successively, uh, you know, for six successive seasons. Remarkably, um, uh, of the current Chelsea Academy, they very much are based on the same lines that Billy Birrell was using in 1940. It's incredible, really. Um, but that's that's how it is. So there's that continuity. We think things have changed, but they haven't changed that much. One one final inflection
3: point we want to touch on before moving on is the famous or infamous uh, Chelsea v Dynamo Moscow match. <laughs> yes. um, po- possibly the largest attendance in the history of Chelsea Football Club?
1: Yes. Um, now, the stadium had, when it started out, uh, it, it um, the idea was that they, as I said, they wanted to use the stadium again and again and again uh, for all different purposes. They wanted to host FA Cup finals. They wanted to host England internationals. They wanted to use it as much as possible, and so they they ended up. It did. We hosted three FA Cup finals in the nineteen twenties, and uh, they built up this stadium so it could hold ninety thousand people. Our biggest ever crowd was in nineteen thirty-five uh, against Arsenal, when we had eighty-two thousand nine hundred and five people packed into. Stamford Bridge. That's the official highest. Um, the unofficial highest is the match that you're talking about, which is Chelsea versus the touring Moscow Dynamo team uh, in November 1945. Now, this just captured the imagination of the whole of London. Uh, it's, everyone says they took the afternoon off work or, uh, or, or bunked off school, and they mobbed the area. And it said that it was the biggest uh, crowd... Uh, on London streets since uh, VE Day, so Victory in Europe Day at the end of World War II. That's how many people were on the streets outside Stamford Bridge trying to get in. are estimated 250,000 people wanted to get in there. Um, And it's thought that uh, under half made it in there, just over 100,000 people. They lined, uh, they swamped the area, climbed over buildings, climbed over the railway line, Climbed over the tube line, which is obviously electric, so they had to close the tube line down because so many people were wandering across it, could have got electrocuted. They covered every advertising hoarding inside the ground. They covered, they st- stood and sat on top of every stadium roof, every, every um, every stand roof. Um and they crowded right up to the touchline. So if you imagine there's a, a greyhound racing track around the pitch. There's a, a, another a semicircle of of space uh, at the end of uh, uh, of each uh, uh, at both ends of the of the pitch, and the whole of that was covered with people. People had gone right up to the touchline. In fact, during the game, which which finished in a diplomatic uh, draw, one of the goals was disallowed because a spectator was on the pitch and deflected the ball. Uh, into the fancy <laughs> box to be scored. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just absolutely incredible. Uh, someone I know who was there was in the east the old east stand, and as I said, there were people just on the uh, on the roof, uh, really mm. precarious. Someone fell through and actually landed fortuitously directly into an empty seat before kick off. Just you know, landed as if transported into this seat. And it, it turned out that he was um, during the war. He'd been a paratrooper. That was a, a nice coincidence. <laughs> His shoot didn't come out this time, <laughs> um, but in, an incredible, incredible experience. One of those that is such an important part of our 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 culture and our history. That again, that was we that was such a uh, an amazing uh, attraction to Londoners to go to Stamford Bridge, to watch Chelsea, to watch these Russians that had beaten Hitler. And again, a really captivating moment
2: in our heritage. All right, Chelsea fans. Well, that is gonna wrap it up for part one. A huge thank you to Rick Glanville for being so generous with his time. He will be coming back for parts two and three. So if you enjoyed this, please go to social media, Twitter specifically, and give him a shout out. Tell him you enjoyed it so we can get part 2 and 3 recorded and into your pod feeds as soon as we can but that'll wrap it up so until next time Chelsea fans you know what to do keep the blue flag flying high